0: It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. There are a lot of different ways we could take this edition of Rico Bronia. We could be really positive, we could be really negative. So, hypothetically, if I wanted to be just a raging douche and be negative, I would talk about all the missed scoring opportunities the Mets have had over the last 48 hours. If I wanted to be negative, I would talk about how Carlos Carrasco looks like hot garbage. But if I want to be positive, if I want to make this a happy Rico, I would simply say the New York Mets won a series. They won two out of three against the Miami Marlins. They are one game out of first place (laughs) if we're looking at the standings. And sure, they're five and five, but they came home under 500, and they've won the opening series of this six-game homestand by defeating the Miami Marlins in two of three games, even though they happen to lose the final game of this series on Sunday afternoon. I think today's pod's going to feature a lot of both. There's going to be some positives. There's going to be some negatives. Because the truth is, they did win a series. And ultimately, whenever we do these pods recapping a series, we'll always look ahead to the next series. And I'm going to give you a spoiler alert. When we start breaking down Mets Padres and that three-game series, I would tell you, go win that series, and I'd be thrilled. Go win two out of three. Now, if the Mets win on Monday night, Tuesday night, and lose Wednesday afternoon, I would still be happy. I mean, it doesn't mean you go into the final game of a series saying, who cares, but ultimately, you want to win a series, and the Mets were able to win a series against the baseball team they should beat in the Miami Marlins. That doesn't mean there wasn't a lot of frustrations over the last couple of days and certainly a couple of things that concern you. Let's go back to Saturday, though. We'll start off with the victory. Obviously, we did a podcast after the home opener, so if you missed that, go back into the archives. You can hear us talk all excitedly about how the Mets won the first game of the year at City Field. The second game of the year at City Field was a late Saturday afternoon against the Marlins, and before I get into the game, one thing that really surprised me was how packed the building was. They announced 41,000-plus for the second game of the year, which is very, very rare. Even for Saturdays or Sundays, that first couple of weeks of the year, you're not usually putting up 40,000 people. And I don't think the giveaway was all that impressive. It was a city field replica. The giveaway last year on a Saturday afternoon was the Tom Seaver statue. And I don't have the attendance in front of me, but I'll look it up as we do this podcast. If I had to guess based on memory, because I was in the building that day, I would say they probably announced in the mid-30s. They certainly didn't announce 40,000 people. So I thought that was kind of cool. And I'm not surprised overall that the Mets' attendance will be better. I'm surprised individually that they did that well that game. I've always said this on the air about attendance figures, whether it's the Mets or the Yankees. You always tend to do better the following year after having success. Because then people start to say, oh, wow, you're legitimately really, really good. And so you really don't get the perk of a, of a great year until the year after. Look at the attendance figures of the 1997 New York Yankees. You know what I mean? Compared to the 1996 New York Yankees, the year they won the World Series. Anyhow, here are the facts because I looked it up as I vamped. On that Saturday afternoon with a really cool giveaway – They had 37,000 people. So about 4,000 less than what they announced on Saturday afternoon. On Sunday afternoon, and I don't think it was Easter Sunday, they announced just 24,000 people for Mets Diamondbacks. For the Sunday Mets Marlins, they announced 33,000. So 5,000 more for the Saturday afternoon, about 9,000 more for the Sunday afternoon. Marlins Diamondbacks, give me a break. No one cares about either. I think you're already seeing the Mets are a little bit ahead of the ball on attendance. But the story of Saturday, the thing that probably may be the number one positive coming out of the first 10 games of the season is the man who towed the rubber on Saturday afternoon, and that's Kodai Senga. In his first major league start against the same Marlins team, we all remember what he did. He got a lot of trouble early on. It looked like he was probably getting knocked out in the first or second thing got through the first inning, settled down. He did a, a lighter version of that on Saturday. Gives up back-to-back base hits with one out in the first inning against Garrett Cooper, who I am just – I am so sick of Garrett Cooper. I'll tell you right now, we mentioned Cooper last year as a July 31st trade deadline target, how he would be a good fit for this team. My God, I wish we we traded for him, not just because he's better than Darren Ruff, but because he wouldn't be haunting the Mets every 30 seconds. But Garrett Cooper, one-out single. Luisa Rise, who they never get out, one-out single. They've got two on, one out against Senga, and very calmly strikes out Soler on three pitches, including using that nasty ghost fork, which has basically lived up to all the hype, and a soft ground out from Gene Segura. And from there, oh, my God, Senga was tremendous. He strikes out the side in the second, fairly easy third, fairly easy fourth fairly easy fifth dude was dominating so one of the concerns you have sometimes with guys coming over from japan or or really anybody that batters haven't seen is once they see him a couple of times they get used to him well this is the second time the miami marlins were feasting their eyes on kodai senga and they could not figure him out he was brilliant he throws hard He's got a good slider, and obviously the put-away pitch of this forkball, the ghost forkball, has lived up to the hype. I mean, he's getting tons of strikeouts on it, and he looked great, and he's shown a lot of poise. And where I really saw the poise was in the sixth inning of this game. The Mets finally had scratched out a 3-0 lead. He gives up the leadoff home run to Jazz Chisholm, gives out a one-out walk to Luisa Rise, throws a wild pitch, walks Gene Segura, and he's in trouble. And I was curious, his pitch count wasn't incredibly high, but I was curious what Buck was going to do in that sixth inning. Was he going to rescue Kodai Senga? Home run, two walks, wild pitch. He looked shaky. I think we'd all admit it. And to Buck's credit, and I give him a lot of credit for this, he did not go to the bullpen. He did not call on Drew Smith or Brooks Raleigh. He went and stuck with Kodai Senga. And he delivered. He got Avisal Garcia to ground out with two men on base and two outs, up four to one. And that was it. From that moment on, he's at 90 pitches. Great. Call today. So Senga was able to find his way through trouble in the sixth inning. He throws six innings, one run, six strikeouts, one pitch clock violation, but no harm, no foul. Really just a, a tremendous performance by Kodai Senga. And I know it's the Marlins – but I'm getting giddy about this. I think, uh, Pete, of all the things to take out of the first 10 games of the season, far and away the biggest positive has to be Kodai Sanger. No question, because there were so many worries about, like, what
1: can he really do here? Like you said, they, we've seen a lot of uh, foreign players come over, and it takes a second. He has been, what is it now, 14 strikeouts in the 12 innings or something like that, or close to it. He's on point. The ghost fork looks great. He's the walks are a little concerning at times, but again, I think that that, that's, if that's the worst of it right now, we're pretty freaking good. Again, he gave that home run to jazz Chisholm, like you said, and still recovered. There was no, it wasn't. He showed points. I mean, in in
0: various ways from the first inning of his first start to the last inning of this most recent start, he's not one to fold under pressure and the Mets have look, and I'm sure they did this partially on purpose. He's had a nice kind of landing spot for his first few major league starts, taking on this light-hitting Marlins team, and his next start is scheduled to be in Oakland against the A's, another place that, at least on paper, feels like a nice landing spot. His next start after that will be a little trickier. He's going to take on the Dodgers unless they mess around with the rotation a little bit, which I would not. Rule out completely where he may face the Giants instead of the Dodgers because you never know about the reinsertion of Justin Verlander or even just using an extra guy. Jose Budo actually looked pretty good at AAA the other day. So, not that I'm pumping him up, but the Mets have talked about looking to kind of give guys an extra day. And Kodai Seng is coming from Japan where they always got extra days. Guys were not pitching on this regular rest of four days, which He hasn't done yet. He hasn't done it yet because of that off day the Mets just had. So from that standpoint, he hasn't been asked yet, yet to pitch on regular rest. And I guess he still wouldn't for that. He wouldn't for the Oakland start because the Mets have an off day Thursday. So his first start potentially on that regular rest would be that finale against the Dodgers. That's why I kind of, a part of me thinks they may finagle that a little bit, whether it's Verlander or someone else. I could see Sanga being pushed off that Dodgers start, not because he's ducking the Dodgers necessarily, but because I think with him, maybe as much as Verlander and Scherzer, they're going to want to give him that extra day because the extra day is normal to him. You know, it's not as if you're pitching on regular rest in Japan, or at least what we deem as regular rest. As far as the rest of that game is concerned, the offense early on, <laughs> it was frustrating. I mean, think about the first inning of this game. Nimmo gets hit by a pitch on an 0-2 pitch. Uh, Marte actually got robbed by Jazz Chisholm, who's looking better and better in center field. Lindor struck out. They have a runner on first, two outs. Alonzo draws a walk. Mark Canna gets a very lucky infield hit. And Jeff McNeil draws a bases loaded walk. That's how the Mets scratched out their first run. They have been the architects of the cheap run. Now, I'm not complaining because every run counts the same. But think about how they gave Kodai Senga the one-run lead. Infield hit, bases loaded walk, and they made that hold up till the fifth inning before Pete Alonzo unleashed with a two-run home run. The other story from this game was Eduardo Escobar, and he sort of erased it on Sunday, but at least in the moment on Saturday. Let me uh, give Escobar some credit. First at-bat of the game, drives a ball to center field. Jazz Chisholm makes a diving catch. Just mentioned it. Jazz looking a lot better defensively. So first at-bat, robbed by Chisholm. Second at-bat, just misses a two-run home run. By by this much, and I'm holding my two fingers together. So first two at-bats, you feel like Escobar's close. Rob by Chisholm, deep fly ball to the warning track to end the fourth inning. Comes up in the sixth inning. Mets are up 3-1, to one, so certainly the game is not over by any stretch. Marlins just threatened an inning earlier, and who knows what this Met bullpen. Comes up with a runner on second and one out, and hits a two-run home run. And so that felt like, wow, okay, two bats in which he was close, two-run home run, Escobar's about to get hot. Now, you all know what happened on Sunday. I mean, basically, the booze came back. He did have a double in the game, but he struck out in a big spot early, which I thought set the tone for the game. And then in the fifth inning of that game, grounded out with the bases loaded. But more on that on Sunday. More on that when we get to the Sunday game. I really thought in the moment Escobar was about to explode. Comes close, breaks through, two-run home run. Mets now have a comfortable lead that they hold on and win. It felt like this was the breakout for Eduardo Escobar.
1: And another thing too is it wasn't like it was a right hit. He he was facing Trevor Rogers to start, but that was a left-handed home run, which is amazing because last year we really didn't see anything from the left-hand side. It was really the right-hand side where we were like, okay, he still has something in the tank. So it was really nice to see that home run from the left-hand side. And you're right I, again. I think it's really all in his head. He still got it there. The booze, everything that happened on Sunday. I think we're just too quick to get on him. I think we just need to give him some space. I think a nice road trip will be nice.
0: We're, we're quick to get on him because of Brett Baiting. I mean, it really is. It's connected. The fact that there's somebody right there underneath him that we're all playing for, I think, adds to the anguish of the Met fan. Like, if the Mets did not have a top third-base prospect, he may still get booed, but I don't know if it would be exactly the same. Uh, Escobar, unfortunately, has run into this spot in which I think he's the first guy on the list from Met fans to get on if he fails. And that has to do with the fact that there's a replacement right below him. The other thing from this game that I was annoyed about before I sat down and watched it, and I watched this game on major, major delay. It was a 4 o'clock first pitch. I didn't go to the game on Saturday. I think I started at about 8 o'clock at night. So, And I did a great job, by the way. Had no idea what was going on. Phone was away. When I sat down at 8 o'clock, I had no idea. It's, it really is. I got to tell you, for most people who hate doing it, it is a great feeling. And I, I tend to do it a lot on Saturdays because that's the day. I don't want to spend time with the family. Don't want to let baseball get in the way. We were going to the game on Sunday, which I'll get to. So I kind of have to – I got to give them all my attention, damn it, Till everybody's sleeping. And at 8 o'clock, everybody's starting to fall asleep. So I started this game at 8 o'clock. I open up my scorebook. I'm writing it down. And Tomas Nito's catching. And I'm not surprised. We predicted this on the pod last time, that Nito was going to start two of these three games. They were going to keep Nito and Senga together. And then we would see Alvarez on Sunday. But it's just a bad sign that we're going to see Nito more than we see Alvarez. We are. It's just the handwriting's on the wall. But the Mets beat the Marlins. Nice, good victory. They win the game 5-2. to The negatives, besides what I mentioned about the offense, is probably some aspects of this bullpen. So aspect number one would be Drew Smith. Drew Smith comes into this game with a five to one lead because Escobar hit the two run home run in the bottom of the sixth inning. And he comes in with a four run lead and immediately right off the top is issuing a lead off walk. You cannot do that. And Drew Smith, who was in the circle of trust with Buck first half of last year, did not pitch well in the second half, had the injury. We don't know what to think about him starting this season. This was a very shaky performance. Walks the number seven header up four runs, gives up a base hit to John Birdie, who's a pain in the ass, and after facing the minimum required of three batters, Buck gets him out the game and goes to Brook Raleigh, Brooks Raley, who doesn't pitch all that well either. Actually, got very lucky. Jazz Chisholm, it's a line drive. Luckily, it's right at Tommy Pham. He walks Garrett Cooper. Gives up an RBI single to Luis Arise. So even though the Mets get a 5-1 to one lead, here comes the bullpen, 5-2. Now they're set up with bases loaded, and Buck pulls him. And I'm telling you, I'm sitting there as he makes the move to get Rayleigh out, which he needed to. I was thinking of David Robertson. And the reason I'm thinking of David Robertson is not that I'm panicking, you know, game two of this series, game eight of the season. Game eight of the season or game, game nine of the season, I should say. It's the old philosophy of bases loaded, two outs. I'm up by two. I'm up by three, I think, at that point, 5-2. I'm going to go to my best reliever. I'm not going to screw around. I, I, I may save David Robertson for a situation that never comes. Now, it's early in the season, so obviously Buck wants to challenge guys. He wants to see what he's got out of this bullpen. I'm just telling you, I'm raising my hand and telling you, that's what I was thinking. I was thinking 5-2 bases loaded, two outs in the seventh. I would just go to Robertson right here, get me out of this inning, maybe pitch the eighth two or face a few batters in the eighth, and I'll go figure someone else out to get the last five outs of this game. You know, maybe it's Adam Adovino. Maybe it's John Curtis. Maybe it's somebody else. Obviously, Buck did not do that. He goes to John Curtis. So John Curtis comes into this game, and we don't know about John Curtis yet. We've seen some good from him. We've seen some bad from him. He's certainly not in the circle of trust, but he goes to him. Bases loaded, two outs, five two. Jorge Soler out at the plate, and a great job by John. Those two pitches gets him to pop up the second base, gets through the inning, and then throws a one two three eight. So for the negative that was Drew Smith, and it was bad. And for the negative that again was Brooks Rally, he wasn't very good. Though so there is one major positive about Rally, I'll get to later. It involves Gary Cohen being old and bitter. But John, that's a tease right there. But John Curtis comes in, gets four outs, doesn't put a guy on base, and passed the test. So great job by him. Robertson comes in for the ninth inning in a 5-2 game. Bing, bing, bing. Gets a save, one, two, three inning. Robertson has looked fantastic. I know it's a limited amount of innings so far, but he's looked great. So John Curtis and David Robertson, good from the Met bullpen on Saturday. The bad Brooks rally, drew Smith, two guys. I think the Mets are going to want to rely on in a big spot as this season goes, but drew Smith. I don't know, man. <laughs> he, he's got he's got to earn to get back into that circle of trust. Pete. Well, this is the thing that sucks about
1: bullpens. We talk about this every year. It's so inconsistent. We, we were like, which guy is not going to be who he was last year. Drew Smith at the second half was not that guy last year. So, it, it's kind of predictable, I guess. Maybe they'll have a great second half, and then we'll will bring it back, bring it all full circle. Um, but again, there's rumors, too, already that I see that Mets are back in the interest level of Zach Britton. You know, So they're clearly not comfortable in the bullpen area.
0: Yeah, I think Zach Britton, I don't know. I, I keep reading his velocities in the low 90s, and that's not the end-all, be-all. But can Zach Britton be anywhere close to what he was three years ago with the Yankees and before that with Baltimore? I have no idea. I don't know. But but right now with this Met bullpen, you're talking about replacing Denny Reyes. You know, you're talking about replacing Dennis Santana, who's come back down to earth his last couple of appearances. So when you when you kind of view those other options versus Zach Britton, it's easy to rationalize. Sure. Why the hell not? Why not bring him in? But a good victory for the Mets on Saturday ensures they win the series, pops him above 500.